Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster, only working in Philadelphia in my hotel room, which is why I'm trying to keep my voice under control just a little bit. Uh, Taylor Schwink is working from the Schwink Studios in Foothill, Connecticut. Uh, And Sarah Abbott is working from the Abbott Studios in Bristol, Connecticut, and still you know, just trying to contain her excitement over the fact that her uh, lifelong Phillies, her favorite team of her life for the last three weeks, Sarah, you're just two wins away from winning a championship with this team. Man, it feels great as a lifelong fan of three weeks. My roommate and I, we were pretty (laughs) hyped up the whole night, having a great time. It was a great, great night for me. Where's the Phillies cap? I know you got to wear headphones and that's might be part of what's going on, but I assumed you'd have your Phillies hat on today. Well, so you see, I'm at ESPN and I think it is frowned upon to wear hats that have like certain teams. I don't know. I actually don't know if that's a rule, but in my heart, that feels kind of weird. So it is at home where it is safe. And you're we've we've gotten like a minute into this conversation, and neither one of us has, have bump have talked about the fact that I bumped into greatness last night, Miles Teller, and I knew right away you'd want to hear that. Oh my gosh! So first of all, I was at work when I got that text, and one of our coworkers, Parker, can attest when I got that text, I went <gasps> like you would have thought <laughs> it was. You would have thought Miles Teller bumped into you. You would have thought. (laughs) My soul transcended my body. It was like an electric experience. I'm so happy for you. What was that like? (laughs) It wasn't as electric as uh, maybe the text suggested. I'll I'll run you through the whole thing when we get to Bleacher Tweets at the end. Uh, But yeah, uh, Miles Teller at the park last night, along with it seemed like anybody else who's a Phillies fan was at the ballpark last night. What a crazy crowd that was. We're going to be talking with Dan Schulman about that. We're going to be talking with Sarah Langs about that. And a conversation coming up with Buck Showalter about managing in the postseason. Uh, a couple notes uh, before the game yesterday. Uh, we reported that the White Sox are set to hire Royals longtime coach Pedro Grafol as their next manager. Grafol has been on the Royal staff since 2013. He's filled with a variety of roles. From what I understand, the White Sox front office was very impressed with Pedro's interview, that first interview, and that uh, put him in a position where he was uh, getting this job. Justin Turner was awarded the prestigious Roberto Clemente Award before the game last night. He was on the field. And here's a cool backstory, guys. Before the game, uh, I'm trying to think it was Eduardo Perez saw him and mentioned uh, that Sarah was also, Sarah Langs was at the ball game last night and he mentioned to Justin, she was on the field and Justin immediately went over to say hi. We have to have a conversation with Sarah about that later. So that was all before the game. The crowd was in the ballpark early. They were absolutely insane, loud, on their feet, especially when this happened in the top of the first inning. And the first pitch of the ball game swung on, line to right field, charging and making a sliding catch is Nick Castellanos, robbing Altuve of a base hit. That was Dan Schulman on ESPN Radio. Yeah, what's up with Nick Castellanos? You know, why didn't he get one of the Gold Glove Awards that were awarded yesterday with the way he's playing defense? Metrically, he theoretically is one of the worst defenders in baseball, was one of the worst defenders in baseball during the regular season. 
but it feels like play after play after play is being made out in right field by him. Uh, if you thought the crowd was crazy in the top of the first inning, they were absolutely bonkers in the bottom of the first when Bryce Harper did this. Schwarber the lead in the first pitch to Harper. Hit high in the air. Deep right center field. It is gone. Bryce Harper with his first big World Series moment. And the Phillies strike first, taking an early 2 to nothing lead. And as Bryce Harper rounded third base and got closer to home plate, he looked right into the Fox camera that was being carried by the, the guy who runs on the field when home runs are hit. And he pointed at the ground and he said something. I asked him about it after the game. You'll hear that coming up. And then he went into the dugout and called over uh, Alec Bohm, who was stepping into the on-deck circle, to give him some words and pointed that lead to a lot of speculation. The internet, we're going to get to all that on the question of whether or not he was giving Bohm some information about how Lance McCullers Jr. was tipping his pitches or something. But when Bohm let off the bottom of the second, this is what happened. The first pitch to Bohm is a swing and a line drive to deep left. It's gone! A frozen rope into the seats in left. And the Alec Bohm home run makes it three to nothing for the Phillies. That rally would continue. And the pitch on the way and a swing and a high fly ball to right. Tucker back on the track, jumps, and it is gone. <laughs> it is gone. Yeah, pretty amazing. So the Phillies are hitting home runs all over the place. It was still... Uh, four to nothing in the bottom of the fifth inning. Kyle Schwarber came to the plate before the game. I, you know, looked at the flags out above center field and I asked Schwarber, okay, tell me about the wind in this ballpark. How does this play? And he mentioned when the flags are like that, you know, if you hit the ball straight to left field in front of the scoreboard, those fly balls aren't affected. Uh, if you hit the ball to right field, the wind will actually push the ball that way. He said the one type of ball that would be affected would be a fly ball hit by a left-handed hitter to straightaway center field. He goes, yeah, that those tend to get knocked down. Well, not when you hit them the way Schwarber hit this home run in the bottom of the fifth. Here's the one, two and a swing and a drive to deep center. McCormick back. Forget about it. A monster home run to straightaway center field for Kyle Schwarber. The fourth home run of the night for the Phillies increases their lead to six to nothing. Nearly 450 feet. It was a, a monster home run. It went uh, about three quarters away up the batter's eye. Uh, I can't even believe the center fielder moved on that one. It was such a shot. Well, the next batter to the plate was Reese Hoskins. Here's what happened. Change ups. Another one is drilled. And this one is gone. Reese Hoskins hits the fifth home run of the night for the Phillies. And they are bludgeoning Lance McCullers Jr.'s pitches tonight, now leading 7 to nothing. And that would be the most home runs uh, allowed by any pitcher in any World Series game in history. As I said, we're going to be talking with Dan Schulman coming up and Ask him what it was like to try to keep up with that barrage of home runs. Ranger Suarez had five scoreless innings. 
Rob Thompson was able to use the back end of his bullpen to get the last 12 outs. He didn't have to use his primary relievers. And this is what it sounded like in the top of the ninth inning. And again, the 3-2, and he got him. Strike three called. And Bellotti finishes it off with a three-up, three-down top of the ninth. And the Phillies come home and win in convincing fashion, slugging five home runs and taking game three by a score of seven to nothing. I spoke with Bryce Harper right after the game. Bryce, you hit that home run. This crowd is so energized. What was it like to go around the bases? That's what it's all about. You know, we show up to play for them here, and, you know, they're excited to be here. And, you know, first time being in the postseason for a long time, and they're fired up. So, you know, being able to put on a show for them tonight was great. Now, as you got close to home plate, you looked right at the camera, pointed down, and you said something. What was it that you said? Oh, this is our house. You know, Philadelphia Phillies, this is us. This is our fan, this is our fan base. This is great. It's been a lot of fun to be able to come out, and, you know, they're enjoying it. The city's enjoying it, and, you know, that's what it's all about. The whole world is wondering what you said to Alec Bohm when you called him back to the dugout. What'd you tell him? No, just trying to have as much information as possible, right? Just having good at-bats and trying to do the best we can to get on McCullers early. He's really good, and, you know, just trying to do the best we can and have the best at-bats we can. In this postseason, Lance McCullers, 109 pitches to left-handed hitters, two fastballs. How much did that shape what you guys are trying to do? Yeah, I mean, we know he's really good. He's got a really good slider, really good curveball. He, he relies heavy on that pitch. Um, you know, just tried to, like I said, have the best at-bats we could possible and go out and get it, try to get him early and not let him get comfortable, right? I mean, that's that's what it's all about in the postseason, not letting the starting pitcher get comfortable, and, you know, we were able to do that. What do you think of the crowd tonight? Unbelievable. Nothing better. Not a, not a stadium better. Bryce, thanks. Back to you. I spoke with Reese Hoskins. Reese, five homers in this game. What was that experience like? Oh, man. Um, it was loud. It was loud. A um, ton of energy in the ballpark. We obviously fed off it. Bryce starting us off with a bang. Able to punch first, I think, is huge when we're playing at home. Gets the crowd involved, and I think it just snowballed from there. Tell me what the reaction was in the dugout when Bryce gets you guys going. Yeah, it's mayhem in there. Um, but we're a confident bunch, too. We kind of feel like this is something that is going to come for us um, in the early in these games, especially when we play at home. Um, but he just keeps screaming, we ain't losing, so we'll follow him. You guys clearly had a game plan against Lance McCullers. What can you tell us about that? Well, we got him in the strike zone, um, and we didn't chase a whole lot. It's a guy with a really good breaking ball, and, and he makes his money and gets his outs by guys chasing outside the strike zone. Um, we got some pitches to hit in in the zone and didn't miss. What about Ranger Suarez tonight? Yeah, I mean, how about the, the poise and the confidence, right? Um, worked extremely fast. He kept us on offense, kept the momentum in our dugout and pounded the strike zone. That's usually a pretty good recipe for success. Reese, thanks. Back to you. After the game, Lance McCullers made himself available to reporters. And I got to say, uh, in the longstanding tradition of pitchers who have rough games uh, and have to answer questions about it, Lance McCullers stood up uh, and answered every question from reporters. At one point, I've heard this from a, a number of folks, a media relations person was telling reporters last question, and Lance basically ignored that and just kept answering questions and being accountable and, and standing there and basically you know, addressing everything that reporters had for him. This was Lance McCullers talking about the whole question, whether or not he was tipping pitches and how he threw. I got beat, man. You know, they uh, they hit a lot of 
a lot of solid pitches, I thought. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we got beat pretty bad and I got beat up pretty bad. So, you know, I obviously wanted to pitch well and, and pitch much better than, than I did. But at the end of the day, you know, all I can do at this point is is get ready to go for a potential game seven. Did they feel like you were, they were sitting on no. the slider? Or just... They just had good at-bats, you know? I mean, I felt like I made some adjustments and went on a little bit of a of a decent run there toward the middle of the game. And then, obviously, it, you know, they hit the two homers to uh, to before I got taken out. So, um, you know, this is a game of adjustments, and, and they're a good team. I've said that before. And uh, they got beat today. Lance, do you think on, on any level you were maybe tipping your pitches at all? There was a conversation that Parker had before, right before a home run. Uh, I think guys have conversations all the time, you know, before at-bats and before innings and things like that. So, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and, and and say anything like that. They, I got whooped. End of story. Dusty Baker was asked about leaving Lance McCullers and to face the Phillies a third time through the order. That in the fifth inning, here's what his response was. Our process was uh, um, the fact that he had he had uh, had two good innings, two real good innings, and then they hit a blooper, a homer, and then I couldn't get anybody loose. I mean, you know, it was my decision. Dusty was asked about Bryce Harper, a player he managed in Washington, helping teammates out with tendencies. Here's uh, give a listen. The, the uh, TV cameras caught uh, Bryce uh, passing on a lot of info to his fellow hitters over there. As someone who managed him for a few years, and he's a, obviously a pretty smart player, mm -hmm. does that not surprise you much? Just whether it was tendencies or whatever he was seeing. No, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, <clears throat> you know, he's a very astute uh, baseball player, very astute person. And uh, that's what teammates do. That's what good hitters do. They pass on whatever information that they can that they can find and see. And now whether he passed on information, you know, to to actually help him, that's that's between him and his teammates. But uh, no, that doesn't surprise me at all. That's that's what guys are supposed to do. Alec Bohm was asked what Harper told him. How, what did uh, Harper tell you? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Just Bohm was asked about sharing information with teammates. Yeah, I mean, look, up and down the lineup, you know, we got guys that are, you know, known as some of the best hitters in our game. So I'd be foolish not to talk to them, you know, and see what they're seeing and see what they've got. So, you know, and these guys have also been around, you know, five, six, seven years longer than I have. So you know, they've seen these guys throughout their careers and they've seen, you know, different things. So I think just picking at that and, you know, them, be willing, them being willing to share and trying to set, you know, the rest of us up for success. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, interesting times in the NBA right now. And uh, ESPN podcast is all over it with the low post. Brian Windhorse and the Hoop Collective, the CJ McCollum show, the VC show with Vince Carter. They've got you covered everything NBA. You can listen to all of those podcasts wherever you're listening to this one right now. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. 
That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Dan Schulman is doing the play-by-play on ESPN Radio for this year's World Series. And Dan, uh, you've done a lot. Have you ever, by the way, have you ever actually gone back and tried to figure out exactly how many games that you've done? Because you are a numbers guy, right? Uh, that would be a tough one. Uh, I, I suppose I could. I am a numbers guy, but I, I know I've done 12 World Series for ESPN Radio. I know I've done 24 years of playoffs for ESPN Radio, and I will admit to having a little file on my computer where all the series that I've done are recorded. But I, I, I'd have to have an awfully long flight to go back and count up the number of games that I've done. But I think between baseball on TV, baseball on the radio, college basketball, NBA back in the day for ESPN, I know it's, I know it's a pretty big number. That's, what, that, that's for sure. Which is a long way uh, for for me to try to explain the context for your opinion when I ask you, what about that crowd at Citizens Bank Park last night? How would you compare that to what other uh, to other crowds that you've experienced? You know, I, I can't imagine ever being at a louder place. I'll give you a couple that I remember. 2007, remember the Rockies had that incredible run late in the season, made the playoffs. That to me was off the charts. Um, maybe I'm a bit biased being from Toronto, but the game where Jose Bautista hit the so-called bat flip home run against Texas, that game was nuts. And that was in a closed dome. So that was something, the old Metrodome, which I'm sure you, uh, went to many times like I did. That place was, was crazy too, but I'm not sure any place was louder than, than last night in Philadelphia. And as you know, you were sitting right behind me, um, you know, first pitch of the game. Altuve lines one to right and Castellanos makes the catch first pitch. So they go crazy again, one pitch into the game and they never stopped. Harper then took it to another level in the bottom of the first, but um, you know, we had been told by friends of ours, you know, Boog and others who had done the national league side, what it was like. And it was, it was every bit of that and more. A hundred percent. And I thought the diff- what differentiates this crowd from others is the intensity of it. Uh, yeah. You know, the fact that, uh, as you say, from the first pitch on, it was so loud and they were on their feet the whole time, Dan. You're looking around and you're like, now nah, somebody's got to be sitting down someplace. Uh, it felt like for, you know, six, seven innings, everybody was on their feet for every pitch. Yeah, they are passionate, right? In Philadelphia, as we know, and that can come out in very positive ways. And when the team's not doing well, it can come out in in negative ways too. Like they can jump on their own pretty good as as we know, but boy, have they fallen in love with this team. And, and, you know, coming in with just 87 wins, the last team to qualify, uh, you know, think about this. And I mentioned this on the air last night, they left for a road trip, whatever it was, September 23rd or something like that. They, They played their last 11 games of the season on the road when they left Philadelphia for that road trip they were nowhere near a guarantee of, to make the playoffs nowhere near and they were not playing well at, at the time they come home 17 days later having made the playoffs beaten the Cardinals 
played the first two in Atlanta. So by the time they come back, it's a different universe for this fan base. All of a sudden, it's holy cow, look at the fills and and, and look at what they're doing. So I, I love the passion here. It, it's it's an edgy passion. It comes with a little bit more, you know, this is not a Midwestern crowd or anything like that, but everybody knows that and understands that. And right now you can see that the Phillies are feeding off the intensity and the emotion in the stands. Yeah, and I think that's where most of the impact is felt, the way the Philly players are uh, – you know, gleaning energy, gleaning that intensity and their focus in what they're doing as opposed to it affecting the Houston Astros players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know this, you know, Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, you know, the guys have been here for a while. They played in front of a lot of hostile crowds. That said is, uh, you know, you, we were all talking after the game last night about what ha- might happen in games four and five. It does feel like the crowd potentially could be a factor with the Astros. What's your take on that? Well, I agree with you know what you said in the the, in the first part of your statement. I, I think it's more helping the Phillies than hurting the Astros, but the result is the same, I guess, uh, either way. Um, the one thing I will say to your point is Christian Javier's never pitched here. And I think Christian Javier is really, really good. Not as big a household name as he should be, but he's never made a start in a world series and he's never pitched in this ballpark. Those are two big things to have to do on the same night when your team is down in the world series. So uh, he's the only guy, not that I would even worry about, but just that you kind of keep an eye on and say, okay, how does he look? Does he, you know, what if he walks the first guy? What if he walks Schwarber on four pitches and then it's ball one, ball two, and then the pitching coach comes to the mound and and all that stuff. So I think the bottom of the first will be very interesting just to see if Javier kind of has his sea legs underneath them in what's going to be a crazy environment. And if they win tonight, whoo boy, what, what it'll be like tomorrow night, presumably Verlander is starting game five with all of that going on. And if the Phillies were a win away from a World Series championship, I can't even imagine what it would be like. You mentioned broadcasting basketball games, and I've been thinking about this because I, I haven't seen the, you know, the sort of impact that a you know, team has on a crowd and the way the crowd responds. You know, in a basketball game, there's a big dunk, and then the opposing coach will call a timeout to try to take the air out of the building to try to quiet the crowd. Um, and in, in, in this case, in Citizens Bank Park, where the Phillies won all six of the postseason games, you can't do that. Right. You actually have to score or do something to to slow them down. It's not like you can just stop the game, which is why I feel like going in tonight's game, man, it it just feels like it's really important for Houston to grab a lead early. You buy yeah, I almost look at this as an Altuve versus Schwarber battle. If one of those leadoff hitters like, you know, you were there bottom of the first inning game to uh, Altuve doubles on the first pitch and it sets the tone. Right. And we asked Dusty before the game last night, what did that mean? And Dusty just kind of looked at us with that little smile that he's got. He goes, he's back. He's not absent anymore. Right. It it sets the tone. Both Altuve and Schwarber are huge tone setters. But I'll give you a cute little weird tie in. You talk about basketball games being so noisy, whether it's in Duke, Kansas or, or wherever. Maybe the loudest moment I've ever been at in a basketball game, 2011, number one Kentucky, undefeated, comes into unranked Bloomington, Indiana, unranked Indiana, and Indiana wins it. Christian Watford hits a shot at the buzzer to win it. And among those who were in attendance that game and stormed the floor as part of the student body 
Kyle Schwarber. He was a student at Indiana when they beat Kentucky. He and I were talking about it a couple of days ago. That might be the loudest place I've been until last night here in Philadelphia. <laughs> I, I got to be a uh, witness to that to that conversation between you guys. That was fun to to hear his memories about that and and his. It, you know, and I, without going into all the details of what he told us, I love the fact that you know there was a baseball practice that was going to interfere right. with the with that you know the time that game was going to start, and it was clear that the uh, all the baseball players like, yeah, we're going to the basketball game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it was funny, but you know what? It, it's um, you see the intensity when it, when Schwarber was telling us that story. It was like he was reliving the moment. There's a there. He's such an interesting guy. He's an open book. He's so transparent. He's so direct. He's so intense. And what he has meant to this Phillies team on the field is obvious. Like in the batter's box, it's obvious. You, you know, you hit 46 home runs and you walk over 80 times. But, um, you know, you and I have been there, talked to his teammates, talked to Rob Thompson about the leader he is and the teammate he is. What a pickup. I, I know he hit 218 this year, but what a pickup Kyle Schwarber has been for the Phillies. Yeah. And, and if uh, if you don't believe it after talking with Phillies people, you would believe it after talking with Red Sox players because they really miss him and they were disappointed that he was not brought back. Uh, all right. Lance McCullers last night, first pitcher in World Series history to give up five homers in one game. What's your take on what happened last night? Well, you talked about it. Eddie talked about it. Jess talked about it. He just doesn't throw fastballs to left-handed batters. And it felt, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think there was a tipping thing. I, I think it was more a game plan thing, a combination of a game plan thing. And I went back and looked at the five home run pitches this morning. Two of the breaking balls were just hangers, like right over the middle of the plate. The one to Harper was just up and right out over the plate. And I think the Phillies we're kind of sitting breaking ball, whether it was slider or curveball. There's only about a two, three mile an hour difference between a slider and curveball. It's not like they're tremendously distinctly different pitches like a lot of guys have. Um, and he made mistakes to guys who can hit the ball out of the ballpark. You know, a lot was made of Harper whispering in Bohm's ear. I, I'm not sure he was saying, you know, the leg kicks a little bit higher. Harper saw one pitch, one pitch. So I, I'm not sure there was any tipping conversation. If you said to me that what Harper said to Bohm was, just nod your head. We're going to make it look like I'm telling you he's tipping pitches, but just nod your head. It'll get in his head. And Bohm's just, go, that wouldn't surprise me. I think the Phillies might have just had a really good game plan and were playing some mind games a little bit with McCullers. And I give McCullers a lot of credit. He stood at his locker after the game and answered question after question and said, I got beat. I didn't make good pitches. I, I think it was a good game plan by the Phillies, some mistakes by McCullers and the Phillies do what they do pretty well, which is take advantage of mistakes and hit the ball out of the ballpark. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And Bryce Harper's a sort who would play 3d chess like that. Understand because yeah. he's had cameras on him since he was about 13 years old. So he knows the potential impact of that and some numbers to back up what you're talking about. In this postseason, Lance McCullers has thrown 109 pitches to left-handed hitters. And among those, he'd thrown two fastballs, two out of 109 pitches. Last night, left-handed hitters, 35 pitches, one swing and miss, three homers. And Dan, the way I was thinking about it after I you know, got back to the hotel room last night, it's almost as if... Uh, you know, if, uh, you know, Lance McCullers were an offensive coordinator who's calling a run play on every single play, right. like at some point, it doesn't matter, you know, what misdirections you might do or whether there was something that was telling you, if you know it's going to be a run play, if you know that he's not going to throw you a fastball, boy, does that narrow it down. 
And you're right about the speed variation of his pitches. At the low end, his curveball's 83 miles an hour. His fastball's 93. And everything else, the changeup, the slider, that's all in between there, which makes it really easy for a professional hitter to narrow it down if he knows there's going to be a run play every single time. Here's the funny part. Lefties only hit 170 against him during the regular season. Like he obviously located and executed better against left-handed batters during the regular season than he did last night. But with all the analytics that all the teams have to look at um, the fact that he only threw two fastballs to left-handed batters and however many pitches it was that you said, like that's an, that's an easy one, right? That's an easy thing to find. There are tougher things to, to find when you do the digging and, and the Phillies, they don't have kids like Schwarber, Hoskins, right. Real Muto, Harper. Look at that top four. You know, going into the postseason, concerns about their bullpen. What will they get at the bottom of the order? What about the back end of the rotation? All valid things at that point. But one through four, Schwarber, Hoskins, Real Muto, Harper, that could that could stand up with any top four in baseball. They've got power. They take walks. They're all veteran guys. They all have at least six years, at least six years in the majors. Some of them have nine or 10 years in the majors. They're smart. They know what they're doing up there. And it just felt to me like they kind of had an idea of what was coming, which makes you think if it goes seven, now what? Like it, it would be McCullers turn to start again. Javier would be ready. I would think and relieve all hands on deck and all that. And game seven seems like it's a year away, but I'm sure the Astros are having uh, some, some, Oh boy, what do we do if it gets to seven? Because he's got to do more than execute better. He's got to change his pitch mix if he's going to face them again. Yeah. I think Dusty had game seven in his mind as that was playing out last night, as you know, you know there's been some criticism of Dusty, for in the in the eyes of some, not getting McCullers out of there sooner. Dan, I was watching that. I'm thinking, Dusty it, thinking is, you know what? I might need this guy in say game seven, and I need him to pitch. Like he's, you know, going into that game last night, he'd only pitched twice in 28 days. And so he needed Lance McCullers to have an outing where he's on his mound, he's working through some things, um, and, and he needs to do everything he can to help make him better. Uh, in a game seven. And I got to believe, yeah, that if there, if there is a game seven McCullers on the mound, it's going to be very different, right? With his, his pitch mix. Yeah, I, I would have to think. And I think one of the tricky parts for Dusty, uh, you know, is McCullers had set down seven in a row coming into the fifth inning. Like he was looking fine. He had gotten the two through eight hitters or one, one through seven hitters, I think, seven in a row. And then he gets the first out of the fifth inning. So he had set down eight in a row. And then Marsh, the number nine hitter, gets a base hit. You know, if he had given up kind of a, an innocuous single in the third and an innocuous single in the fourth and Schwarber's leading off the fifth, maybe he doesn't even come back out for the fifth inning. But he had set down seven in a row. The eight and nine hitters were the first two guys up. He gets the number eight hitter. Uh, Segura, and then a base hit for Marsh, and then boom, boom, like it. And then it happens in the blink of an eye. So, um, you know, it was one of those things where things maybe could have turned out different. And they're not going to win the game, no matter what happens. But what right. it might have done if he had come out earlier is force Rob Thompson to use Jose Alvarado or force him to use Sir Anthony Dominguez or force him to use David Robertson or something like that. And maybe that compromises them a little bit tonight or tomorrow night. So, you know, cause you saw Alvarado got up and then they hit the homers and he sat down and then Connor Brogdon was the guy who got up. So it allowed Rob Thompson to really make moves a little bit more freely. 
and it, it's always tricky. You know, you're trying to win this game, but you're thinking about other games. And sometimes when you try to straddle the line a little bit too much, you don't achieve either goal. Yep. And you led perfectly into my next question. How big was that for the Phillies that they didn't have to use any of their big relievers last night? Uh, I think it's huge because the way baseball goes these days, as you know, is three days in a row is a thing. You rarely see guys pitch three games in a row, three days in a row. I know it's the World Series, but still, even if they go out there, they might be a little bit compromised. But now Rob Thompson doesn't have to worry about that. That's gone. He can he can load up his big guys tonight and tomorrow night, and then they get a day off. And then there are two games down in Houston if necessary. So. Um, I, I think it was really big. And, and listen, Nick Nelson in the eighth inning, when he walked a couple of guys, it almost forced Thompson to make another move and go to somebody else that he didn't want. But it was one of those nights where things worked out. They just played out perfectly for Rob Thompson. The moments happened at the right moments for him to be able to make the bullpen decisions that he wanted to make. Now, how much fun is it for you uh, to watch Rob Thompson manage in this World Series? Because you guys speak the same language. We okay? do. We're both it's been fun Canadian. to hear that every day. Yeah. yeah. So he's from a small town in, in southwestern Ontario or western Ontario, I guess, Corona, Ontario, kind of across the border from Port Huron, Michigan, for, uh, for context for uh, U.S. listeners. But uh, he, as you know, is as down-to-earth a guy as you will ever meet, not just in baseball, like anywhere a lifer, 59 years of age, been a coach forever and been passed over for some managerial openings. Um, but now finally getting a chance after Joe Girardi was let go. And it's just, and, and I love Dusty just as much, you know, as you know, you've known Dusty as long as I have, maybe longer. He He's a great guy too. But, but you know, I, I, I won't lie when I say that as a Canadian, it's kind of cool to see a Canadian managing in the World Series. No Canadian has managed in the what we know is the World Series from 1903 on. Uh, there was a gentleman in the 1800s who did it before it was really the World Series. But to see Rob Thompson getting this chance and to to imagine what, you know, all the bars, he talked about the little Italian, the pizza joint, uh, you know, up the street from where his family lived, to, to know what all the bars in Corona and in Sarnia and in Stratford and in all the places where he has roots um, in Ontario. Um, you know, the Canadian baseball community is not huge. It's not nearly as big as the U.S. baseball community, obviously, but there are a lot of people taking a lot of pride and really enjoying uh, what what Rob Thompson is experiencing right now. And, and, you know, good things, you like to believe good things happen to good people. And it took a while for Rob Thompson, but it's great to see him getting this opportunity. He told us this cool story yesterday about his contract negotiations. I'll let you go through that. Uh, that that was really fun to hear him because I thought it was a direct reflection of his personality. Yeah, well, you were the one who asked the question, so you you deserve the credit. But he said, here's the best part. He goes, we were on the bus. I can't remember. Was it Atlanta or St. Louis? Like, he doesn't even remember what city they were in. And he goes, and Dave Dombrowski said, can you come to my hotel room? I'd like to talk to you about something. So he figured it might be a contract, but he didn't want to assume. And he said he went to Dombrowski's hotel room and they did the contract and then I I followed up and I said wait a minute you did it in one night he goes one night we did it in 20 minutes it took 20 minutes for him to sort out the contract and within that 20 minutes was him wanting to make sure the coaches were okay are the coaches going to stay because I love the coaches and that's Rob Thompson in a nutshell and uh you know he wasn't going to fight about money he's appreciative of the opportunity um I, I interviewed Bryson Stott a couple of days ago and I said what has Rob Thompson meant to this team that was the whole question. He, he said he's meant everything like he's meant everything. He's just got a deft touch uh, and a way of making the players feel valued and putting them in good spots. You know, even a, 
a little thing, the rainout changed the pitching plans. And I can't remember which among us, who among us asked the question, you know, so what did you say to Syndergaard? And what did you say to, to um, uh, Suarez? And he said, well, I brought them all in the office. I brought all the pitchers in the office right when they postponed the game. And I laid out the plan. That sounds like an easy thing, but you know, Buster, not everybody does that. And, uh, you know, whether it's you and me at ESPN or, or people in any walk of life, you know, communication and wanting to know where you fit in in the bigger picture is a really important thing. And I think Rob Thompson, maybe without even realizing how good he is at that, is really good at that. Yep. He's been phenomenal. And it's uh, been fun doing the World Series with you, Dan. Again, it's fun spending this time with you. Thanks Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Always enjoying it. Uh, bring the earplugs tonight. It's going to be just as loud. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash buster. Just go to indeed.com slash buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. And Sarah, you have been at the ballpark the last two days. Uh, first, we had the rain out on Monday, and we're all kind of bummed out. But wow, uh, to experience that crowd last night, I, I actually have ringing in my ears this morning, in part because I'm getting older, but also <laughs> because of that crowd last night 
How nuts was that to be in the ballpark for it? Oh my goodness. Worth the wait. Incredible. And you know, I kind of have that feeling too. And I didn't realize why until you just said it, but my ears are certainly still in recovery. I mean, exactly what we've been hearing about and hearing in the background of broadcasts all postseason. And it's really, really cool to see. And, you know, I was saying to someone last night, I think they would have been the exact same if the Astros had done what the Phillies did in the first inning. It's almost like it doesn't matter what the score is. They are so into it. And then when the team gives them something actually to cheer about, it's just on another level. All right. One of the uh, people that you worked alongside uh, in your time in baseball is longtime pitcher Dallas Braden. Here's Dallas talking about you, Sarah, talking to you. Langs, what's up, girlfriend? It's Dallas. Just wanted to swing by, say hello, check in on you. I, I, I was hoping I was going to get to be able to say all this stuff to you in person in spring training, but it's the offseason. So until then, you got to deal with hearing my voice. But I, I'm sure that's a heck of a lot better than having to stare at this face. Anyway, Buster, quit laughing. It wasn't that funny. Langs, girlfriend, I hope you truly realize what sort of corner you have carved out for yourself in this baseball world. Myself, uh, along with countless others, look forward to getting up in the morning, checking the feed, seeing what kind of crazy way you have tied numbers and stories and performances together to weave a crazy statistic that's going to show a lot more and tell a much bigger story than maybe just some numbers. And that takes talent, a whole lot of talent, Sarah. And you have it in spades. And we, as a sport and as people who love the game, are fortunate to have people like you that have fallen in love with the game as well because it's things that you do and the way you see the game that allow others to fall in love with the game probably even easier than some. You personify class, strength, and anybody who is worth their salt has been made a better person just by talking baseball with you. You can count me in that group for sure. So until I get to squeeze you next spring training and say hello, you'll have to deal with this voicemail. So keep kicking ass, will you? Keep Buster in line. Someone's got to. We'll see you at the ballpark next year. Later, girlfriend. <laughs> All right. With that in mind, Sarah, let's play the numbers game. Oh, my goodness. All right. First. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm so disoriented by Dallas. Thank you so much to Dallas. If we can keep that in. I really, really appreciate hearing all of that. And now I'm ready for the numbers game. I promise. Number three. Number three is six. So we're talking about that home crowd in Philly. And, you know, we've talked about this already on this podcast. Not really quantifiable, but it kind of is because the Phillies have not lost in front of these fans yet in this postseason. So they are 6-0 at home so far this postseason. They're the eighth team to win at least their first six home games in a postseason. The Braves last year won their first seven. 
Astros uh, won their first seven in 2017. Yankees won all six in 17. Phillies won all seven in 08. Cardinals won their first six in 04. And the Yankees in 99 and Twins in 1987 each won all six they played. So to backtrack with how I just explained that, the most home games by any team to finish a postseason undefeated at home is seven by the 2008 Phillies. So if the Phillies were to pull off what we would consider pretty improbable and win three straight here in Philadelphia, they would be the first team to finish a postseason undefeated at home playing at least eight home games. Number two. Number two is five. So the Phillies hit a ton of home runs last night. And the reason I hesitated is I didn't know which number to lead with here. So they became the second team in postseason history with five home runs in the first five innings of a game, joining the Dodgers in NLCS game three in 2020. You may remember that game. I believe they scored 11 runs in the first inning against the Braves. So this was the first time that any team had done that in a World Series game. They were also the first team in World Series history with three home runs through the first two innings of a game. And we have Bryce Harper out here hitting go-ahead home runs left and right. He now has four which are tied for the second most in a single postseason, trailing only Albert Pujols in 2004, who had five. Number one. Number one is 85%. So we talked entering game three about how crucial game three is. Teams that win game three in a tied best of seven series 1-1 go on to win 69% of the time. In a best of seven postseason series, Teams that go ahead 3-1 have gone on to win that series 78 of 92 times. That is 85%. And I know we're a day early and the Phillies have not done that and they may not. But the reason I thought that's important to discuss today is that is how important this game is tonight for the Houston Astros. You look at 3-1, you're like, okay, it isn't 3-0, it's doable. And yes, this team is really talented, but there have only been 14 teams to rally from a 3-1 deficit in the best of seven series. And the last team to do it was those Dodgers, who I mentioned earlier against the Braves in the NLCS in 2020. So, Sarah, you've seen all the videos of Lance McCullers and the theories about the you know, potential pitch tipping uh, and you also know, because I was texting you during the game last night, uh, you know, the person who I was a staffer, who I was uh, connecting with, who was giving me his opinion, saying eh, there's no pitch tipping. It's about game planning. And it's about the fact he wasn't throwing any fastballs. I mentioned to Dan Schulman, uh, you know, how uh, he threw 35 pitches, 35 pitches to left hand hitters last night. He got one swing and miss and three home runs. And after talking with this person, texting with this person, and after t- talking with Eduardo Perez, uh, you know, and knowing their belief that it was about the fact that he was so one-dimensional, it kind of, as I mentioned to Dan, it made me feel like that, 
in some respects, McCullers was like an offensive coordinator who was only calling run plays. And once you have it narrowed down that much with major league hitters, <laughs> it makes hitting a lot easier. What's your belief? Do you think this was pitch tipping or do you think that uh, uh, that Bryce Harper was actually playing 3D chess and he was trying to get inside the heads of the Astros by whispering into Bohm's ear, which is something that Eduardo believes? Yeah, I uh, I think what he whispered, again, we have no idea, was probably along the lines of, see, I told you. And that would be that they saw what his game plan has been against lefties all postseason. As you know, we mentioned last night, 109 pitches now, two lefties this postseason. Two of them have been fastballs. So I don't think pitch tipping even matters here. This is a very obvious game plan type of thing. And I think when anyone who could go and pull up, you know, baseball savant page and see what the approach has been is able to do that. We know that teams do that. This is how they prepare. So I think it was that. And I mean, you know, on the uh, TV broadcast, John Smoltz, I mean, he basically called it. And again, it wasn't a difficult call necessarily. He said that line, which was entering the game, he'd thrown one fastball, two lefties all postseason. He said, if I'm Bryce, I'm sitting, you know, breaking pitch, and then there you go. So, you know, I agree with what you said, what, you know, Eduardo said, and everyone has kind of alluded to. I really think it's just the game plan and the fact that anyone can kind of pick up on that. Yep. That's exactly right. Before we go, I heard you got to meet Justin Turner last night. My sources tell me that. Uh, what was that like? Your sources are correct. I was totally blown away. We were just standing on the field and, uh, you know, just watching BP, everything else. And he walked over and said, hi, I'm Justin Turner, the Dodgers. I'm like, I know. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, and just said that they're all rooting for me and some very, very kind things. But, you know, the first thing that I thought of and we were discussing was, this is why this guy is the Roberto Clemente winner, that thought and care for others. So, I mean, very, very kind. And I was totally not expecting anything like that. I'm just sitting there watching BP. All right, Sarah. Well, I'll see you at the park later. See you then. Thanks so much for having me. Buck Walter is the manager of the New York Mets. Uh, and Buck, before we got started here today, uh, Sarah Abbott uh, recalled that fun moment during the postseason when Francisco Lindor uh -oh. was sitting with his, with his daughter uh, and his daughter pointed to you and said, Buck, tell me about that relationship yeah. and how that set started. Well, quite frankly, with a lot of young kids, it's the word that's easiest to say. Let's be upfront about it. You know, Buck comes out pretty easily where sometimes mama and daddy doesn't quite get there. But I was pretty, uh, that was pretty cool. Um, for some reason, I always acknowledge her when I'm walking down the media after a game or uh, uh, coming out of there, and she seems to be coming out of the family room right about then. She's precious. You know, her mother is a concert uh, violinist, and she's this little girl's playing the cello. I mean, what a family. The, the story behind the story. and. Um, just uh, pretty cool. Makes you keep everything. Don't take yourself too seriously. You come after a tough post-game media meeting and this little girl sitting there saying your name, it really doesn't matter what's been said in that 
Uh, I have a, she's pretty cool. She's got my heart, Buster. I can tell you that. And well, you and I have a similar name. I, you know, people will remember my name too because it's the name of so many dogs and cats. You know, and that's what I always yeah. tell them. Uh, that uh, well, you know, I met I met know, more I dogs and cats named Buster than uh, than human beings. So, well, you know, when you when you get words like that, all Francisco says, "Man, I just hope she doesn't get her tongue tied on it sometime in the middle of the grocery <laughs> store or something." <laughs> uh, how locked into the world series are you you know I, I watch it i'm a fan of baseball and i've got some people i pull for on both sides of it you know i've known robbie forever kind of part of the hiring process years ago with the yankees i i ran into robbie as a player coach in lakeland in 88 when he first got on my radar he was uh, over there and i was managing the florida state league fort lauderdale yankees and then the next year he was i believe the third base coach our first base coach for Chris Shambliss in London, Ontario in the Eastern League. And I mean, we hired him the next year with the Yankees. I remember saying to them that, that, you know, you guys get a chance to get this guy. And that was at a young age. It's very similar path to Glenn Sherlock with a player coach to coach. but uh, And, of course, Dusty and a lot of people. So, um, and we obviously played Philadelphia a lot this year, so you get to know him. But it's painful, Buster, to be obviously – to, to be um, honest with you, I don't uh, – painful is too strong a word. It's just, you know, you realize what a roll the dice October baseball is, and you grind like heck to just get a chance to roll those dice, and then it's it can be very cruel at the end. Yeah, I've reached out to some of your peers and asked them the question, you know, about coming on the podcast, and I preface it by saying, are you watching the World Series? And I got to say, you know, a half dozen have said, you know what, I'm not really watching at all because of what you're talking about. You know, some – some uh, like to actually watch Alex Cora, you know, for example, you know, he's really into it. Uh, but on the other hand, I remember Brian Cashman, the general manager of the Yankees, telling me that when the Yankees are knocked out, he doesn't really watch that much after that. Well, Just, you know, it, it, it's also we're around so many games busters through the year. And there's so many things that we kind of know kind of behind the scenes stories that and, um, you know, your whole life, the difference is you wanted to be a participator. That's what separates those guys that, that played on our team with the Mets this year. They, their whole life, they'd see something and go, okay, I want to do that. You know, there are a lot of them self-taught. They'll go, hey, you hit a, a wedge from 100 yards. How'd you do that? How'd you hold the club? What were you thinking? Hey, you bunted there. What were you thinking? You know, we, 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 we're constantly asking people because we wanted to participate. So these guys that aren't watching – they want to participate. You know, they want to be a part of the, and that's, that's the difference with the guys in the big leagues. The players is they didn't want to be a watcher from the side. Now, listen, a lot of people don't have the ability. They want to play, but they can't. So they end up going down different avenues in order to get there. Some become general managers, some become farm directors, just some way to stay in, in, in the love of the game. But you know, the guys you're talking to, they want to participate. They don't want to watch. Carl Ravitch and I, I think, have quoted you about two or three times since our experience uh, broadcasting that first series that you guys had in the wild card round, where you mentioned that, yeah, there's a lot going on that you guys are not privy to. And I thought about that, you know, in watching Rob Thompson manage his staff now about all the variables that he's dealing with with his pitching staff. And he's not going to lay it out for us. No, neither did you, uh, where, you know, Zach Wheeler, you know, how fresh is he? Uh, you know, how is this guy feeling? How is that guy feeling? How does that fit? Uh, so I, I'm just curious yep. about your perspective on variables once we get to October with yeah. so many of these guys at the end of the year. 
Yeah, you know, and we see it so much. Guys have a great regular season and they scuffle in the postseason. And, you know, you, you talk, you know, every day at a certain time, my pitching coach and bullpen coach, we come in, we sit down, and we collect all the information we've gathered from that day. You know, how they felt the night before it starts uh, after the game. Then it's the throwing program. Then it's maybe a side day from a first starting pitcher thinking down the road. And uh, even the trainers, everything you're getting feedback about what a guy – what is, okay, this guy might need an extra day. Hey, keep this guy on rest. Some guys are better off with a routine of every fifth day. Everybody's a little different. Bullpen guys, you know. Um, there's just so many variables to managing a pitching staff. And, you know, there's certain guys that do real well uh, during the regular season but might struggle in the postseason. But some of it's because of the amount of innings and the, and the bullets uh, that you have in your arm. And being able to manage that so you can put your best foot forward and in October is a challenge. And, uh, you know, it was that team they said about two years ago, like Seattle was a team that was built for the regular season. You know, I wish we'd, we would duplicate the regular season in the postseason. I really do. I wish we'd play five days in a row, all five game series at least, where you have to pitch all five of your pitchers. The things that allow you to win 100 games or lose 100 games shows up in the postseason. You don't have these off days where you get two hot pitchers and you roll. It just... You know, it doesn't reflect what you're asked to do for 162 games. The postseason is completely different. I wanted to ask you about this because, I, you know, you sit in the dugout making these decisions every day. My, you know, Boog Shambi, who you know, you know, he and I are great friends. Mm-hmm. And we have this uh, argument all the time about lineup protection. Um, you know, his view, which I think reflects the view of a lot of the, the, the analytic, analytic world, is that there's no statistical evidence that lineup protection matters. And I always counter him by saying, Boog. Talk to a pitcher, talk to a catcher, talk to managers. They make decisions in every inning, in every situation based on who's in the on-deck circle, where the runners are. Um, and, and I always feel like this is especially important when we get to October because that's when it feels like teams are hyper-focused and they lock in on you know one really hot hitter or one guy who's the, uh, you know, the, the anchor of a lineup. What's your view on lineup protection and how important it is? Well, you know, it's like the uh... – how many times do you go into a series and go, we're not going to let this guy beat us? I mean, it's no secret. Jeff Kent, I believe, won the MVP, correct me if I'm wrong, because Barry Bonds walked a hundred and something times, and he was constantly there. And, um, you know, that's why baseball is the epitome of a team sport. I can't make the ball be hit to my best defender with the game on the line. I can't make my best hitter hit when the bases are loaded in the ninth inning. It's got to be his turn, or the ball has to find its way to you. Um, lineup protection can be a little overrated. Uh, basically, what a lot of what you're trying to get with a lineup is you're trying to make them pick their poison. That's what you're trying to do. Where everybody is has a lethality to them, if there's such a word, and a lethal part to them. But you know, if just one guy, the odds are a little bit more in your favor. It may be a switch hitter and this and that, whatever. But um, you know, when you get a hot hitter you need to make sure that they have to pay it. They have to really think about it before they, it's not so much walking it's pitch around him. You, know, you can tell when a, they might as well intentionally walk when well, Pete Alonzo's uh, in one of his really good forms, which he was a lot this year, you know, it's just a matter of whether they could make him swing out of the strike zone. And what happens, why they make so many mistakes on guys like him and Barry Bonds back then. I used to go, how did they hang a curveball to that guy? How do they, throw this fastball right down the middle to that guy out of all guys. And, you know, talking to pitchers, 
through the years, the anxiety that those hitters create in pitchers. They make them want to torque their best slider. They make them want to reach back and try to get more. And what happens when you try to get more, sometimes you lose your, your mechanics. You, you're, you're, you work under a breaking ball. You hang one. It backs up. Fastball goes right down the middle exactly where you weren't trying. I think the anxiety that great hitters create in pitchers make them make mistakes because the, the mentality and the emotion of that moment sometimes gets in the way of their arm. But uh, try having your hot hitter not have anybody hit behind him. And um, it's just a matter. It really challenges his discipline buster because they're not going to throw him a strike. There's so many times there. But the problem is if you go back to Pete's 40-something home runs, I'll bet you half of them were on pitches that weren't strikes. And that's where some of the stuff about selectivity, you know, what am I supposed to say to him? Don't swing at those 20 home runs you hit that were balls. You know, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough because these guys, their damage, their damage ratio to contact is real high. So when you talk to, along those lines, you get into those situations and, uh, and you, you know, hey, don't let that guy beat us. Are there pitchers, some pitchers, will you take that decision out of their hands, that choice out of their hands, say, go ahead, walk him, versus other guys you're going to let sort of try to navigate that uh, on their own and you're betting on their precision and their comfort? Well, like I would trust Max Scherzer and Jake DeGrom. Those guys know what, what they're doing. But, you know, those aren't one of those things where you go, hey, what do you want to do here? That's not fair to the pitcher. You know, either walk him or don't walk him. You know, for the most part, you know, don't go out there and ask the guy, what do you think? I'm thinking about this. And you create this doubt in their mind. Um, but there's a lot of trust that you develop with guys through the season. You know, like Max knows exactly what he's trying to do with every hitter. He knows which hitters have had some success on what pitches. I mean, this guy's a student of the game. You know, Schilling was that way with us in Arizona. He he had a great memory of pitches and shape of pitches. And not not just that game, but from previous seasons and he remembers everything and i said sometimes i go max you know they're not as smart as you some of these guys you're trying to trick a dummy here and there and uh he's he's something i think it depends on the pitcher depends on the pitcher but for the most part pitchers don't like walking hitters they their whole intentionally their their whole life they've done nothing but be in attack mode and they they're better than everybody so it, it's a tough thing to give into I think asking them what they want to do is not fair to them. That's your, that's your job. You need to make that decision. All right, Buck. Thanks for doing this. Great to talk with you. Hey, anytime. Good luck to you guys. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday. Bleacher Tweets are brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without, without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. Buster. You've got a tail to spin, and Sarah needs the details. You met Miles Teller on the field last night. Do share. Well, well not really. Uh, so I was walking off the field, and I was actually going through the runway uh, up back to the clubhouse, and here comes an entourage, and Miles Teller's right in the middle of it, uh, Sarah, a uh, head taller than everybody else in that group. And it's just that reaction. I mean, I told you guys, he follows me on Twitter. He's a huge baseball fan. We actually just had a conversation with Justin Verlander, about hanging out with Miles Teller uh, the night before. And he said, boy, this guy really knows baseball. And so he was, you know, top of mind already. And I'm walking in the runway and there he is. And I just go, hey, Miles. And he goes, hi. And that was it. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't exactly dramatic. I mean, be still my beating heart. It would have, like, I would have passed out, I think. Were you overwhelmed? What was that experience like? Was it magical? 
No, the absolute for front of front part of my brain thought as soon as I had that exchange was I got to text Sarah and Taylor. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, it was it was because I just knew you would be so fired up. <laughs> I'm so I'm so happy for you. Like, that's just that's just well, amazing. I'm happy for me. I'm happy. For, I'm like, you're one degree of separation from Miles Cheller. I am. I'm one degree of separation from Miles Teller, which means I'm two degrees of separation from Taylor Swift. So. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Sarah, professional podcaster here. What a segue. Debbie Gammons Brown writes in two nights of Taylor Swift's tour in Philadelphia and only one in Houston. We need your commentary here, Sarah. There is deep World Series relevance. I mean, the double works hard, but Taylor Swift works harder. She is one step ahead of everybody. So therefore, the Phillies are winning the World Series because of Taylor Swift and also Miles Teller. And that's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Wow. Okay. What a take. Mitchell at Tigers of Detroit <laughs> writes in, what adjustments do the Astros need to make at the plate in order to bounce back? They seemed off balance all game. Mitchell, I think they got to get a lead. This is like a college football game where you feel like that early momentum is going to be really hard to reverse. So, yeah, I I think tonight it's going to be absolutely crucial for somebody, you know, Jordan Alvarez, Altuve, somebody needs to put a ball in the seats and to at least dampen a bit of the enthusiasm of that crowd and that is that is going to be a challenge tonight. We'll see. Aaron Nola historically pitches very well at home. Eric Zetterberg at Zeddy 626 writes in with Pujols' retirement official this week. Good time to look back on his big moments. Uh, most memorable for me is his window-rattling blast off Brad Lidge in the 05 NLCS. As a young Astros fan, it was crushing. What are your, some, some of your favorite Pujols moments from the playoffs, Buster? Well, I hope you felt a little better about it because, as you know, uh, Roy Oswalt went up to St. Louis and he won game six of that series. So the pool's home run really didn't uh, wind up making a difference. Actually had a conversation with Brad Brad Lidge about that home run recently. And and he remembered thinking just, you know, how incredible a hitter that uh, pool's was, you know, and facing him back then. My favorite pools moments, I think the three home runs in the World Series against Texas in one game, that was pretty impressive. You guys have anything? <laughs> no, that's uh, that's very impressive indeed. We can leave it at that. Uh, last one for today, Andrew Hobbs at Hobbs Presents. Why isn't Ron Washington a Major League Baseball manager? I don't want to lose him from the Braves organization, but we got to let that peacock fly, Captain. Yeah, I think there was some speculation that maybe he'd wind up being uh, a guy who's going to uh, manage the White Sox going forward. Um, but you know, let's face it. He's now that he's in his seventies, I think it's a hard, uh, in a hard road for him to get another job. I think he'll be with the Braves for the, through the end of his career. All right. There you have it. Hashtag bleacher tweets on Twitter while you're watching the game tonight. Thanks for joining everyone. That's it for today. Uh, my thanks to Dan, Sarah, Buck, Walter, Sarah, and Taylor. Uh, have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. 
claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.